Um, uh, Mal- Malcolm Gladwell, uh, in an article he wrote a number of years ago about what it means to be a good neighbor, referenced an experiment that a Princeton University psychologist conducted on seminary students. Uh, the students were unexpectedly asked on very short notice to give a talk to a group of their professors on the parable of the Good Samaritan. And on their way to give those talks, they all encountered a man who was moaning for help. And guess what? Most of them didn't stop to help. A couple of things stand out to me about this story. First, I'm glad I turned down my scholarship to Princeton. And, uh, and second, I'm glad that didn't get a huge laugh, because if it got a huge laugh, then that meant y'all would think I couldn't get into Princeton. Uh, but um, second is the fact uh, that these students were going to teach on the Good Samaritan shows us how easy it is to hear this story, to even study it, even prepare to teach it, and still have it not change us in any way. Uh, Even as I've been working on this series and and writing these sermons, um, every every time I kind of go to work on it, there's so much to be convicted by in this story. And, And I keep praying and I keep saying, God, you know, please make this stuff go into my heart. Like, I don't just want to keep it up here. Like, I want to be affected by this. But at the same time, I see myself resisting it. I also have seen that there have been plenty of opportunities for me to, to kind of practice what I preach. And every time I, like, don't want to, uh, but then I kind of feel like I have to because I'm teaching on it. So, like, th- this is, this for me, I don't know about for you, but for me, uh, studying this story so Um, consistently over three weeks uh, has been challenging. Uh, We started this series by just looking at the story. We started by looking at the the story that we've probably all heard that we're very familiar with, uh, hopefully with just an openness to have the story affect us. And then last week, we looked at the question behind the story, the, the reason the story was made up. And the reason the story was made up was to show us what we were built for, what God had in mind when he thought us up. See, in the Good Samaritan, we see a picture of what humanity was always meant to be, which I think is crazy. Jesus chose this very unlikely hero. He chose a person who was hated by God's people, and he said, hey, this is a picture of what I had in mind when I thought you up. We also saw last week that grace is the only way that you and I can measure up to what we were built for, to love God and to love neighbor all the time, completely, sacrificially. And if you weren't here the past two weeks, I want to encourage you uh, to go back and listen online to those sermons, because even though what we're going to talk about tonight and today, I, I feel like will be helpful, without week one and week two, we could miss the point. Hebrews 12, 15 says, see to it that no one misses the grace of God. And today, hopefully, we'll see some practical ways that we can be about that. But before we discuss it, let's look again at the passage. And as we listen to it, remember that it's meant to change us. Anytime Jesus told a parable, he told it because he he was meaning to change the way the listener thinks and acts. So even as we hear it again today, let's be hopeful that it has the power to change us. If you don't have your Bible, it's printed in your bulletin. This is Luke 10, starting in the 25th verse. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? 
He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Now which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell in the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. This is God's word. So today, we're gonna wrap up this series by just looking at the things the Samaritan did, like what he actually did. We're not gonna spiritualize it. We're just gonna look like what exactly did the Samaritan do? And hopefully, by looking at that, we'll begin to see what it means to be on mission. Remember, we're in this two-year teaching plan uh, on the church. We said the church is people. It's not a building, it's people. The church is people devoted to God in community on mission for God's glory. And last, uh, last spring, we looked at what it means to be devoted to God. This past fall, we looked at what it means to be in community. And so now we're moving into a season of teaching where we look at what it means to be on mission. And for the next five months, the teaching is all built around that. And so we're gonna start by just saying, okay, what did the Samaritan do? Well, I think he did three things. Um, it's almost as if Jesus knew that preachers loved three-point sermons. Uh, he does three things. He looks, he then meets the immediate need in front of him, and then he gives until he feels the burden. Three things. He looks, he meets the immediate need in front of him, and then he gives until he feels the burden. So let's kind of flesh that out. Let's look at what that means. The first thing he does is he looks. It says in verse 33, but a Samaritan as he traveled came where the man was and when he saw him, he took pity on him. Looking is so important. In fact, looking is the difference between being a good neighbor and a bad neighbor. Whatever reasons the priest or the Levite had for looking away, which we, we talked about those a little bit on the first week of the series, Jesus doesn't validate any of them. Jesus simply says, if you look away from someone in need, you're a bad neighbor. So we're a bad neighbor whenever we avoid people in need. When we come up with flimsy, flimsy excuses for refusing to get involved, when we have little or no concern for those who are sick or maybe dying, whether uh, spiritual or physically, when we see someone who might be in trouble but we refuse to stop and help and just see if there's anything that we might be able to offer, when we're too selfish to interrupt what we're doing or be inconvenienced by someone else's problems. See, we are a bad neighbor whenever we turn a person into a problem. 
And we've all done that. We've all been bad neighbors. But that's not what we were built for. And so Jesus uses this story to invite us to look more like what God had in mind when he thought us up. And the key to that is by looking. In fact, in the Gospels, over 40 times, it says Jesus looked at someone or Jesus told someone else to look at someone or Jesus taught on looking. Jesus is constantly inviting us to look at our looking because he knows that's the key to change us who we were always meant to be. That we begin the process of changing through our looking. Uh, my, uh, my fifth son, our newest son, Huck, um, was, uh, was a little surprise from Jesus. And, uh, you know, we had had four kids and that, thank you, Jesus, that was great. We loved that. And then all of a sudden, um, just a few months after our fourth was born, we found out uh, that we were having a fifth. And, uh, and to be honest with y'all, um, you know, it, it, we weren't sure what we thought about him. And so, um, and, and that lasted a little while until we saw him. And it wasn't, it wasn't even just when he was born. Uh, it really changed the, the moment we saw him on the ultrasound. See, looking changed us. Funny story, we were, um, we were so surprised uh, by Jesus with, uh, with Huck's arrival that when we went to the doctor for our first visit, we had no idea how pregnant we were. And like, you know, we, we knew how it happened, but we didn't know, what, you know, we didn't know when it happened. And uh, and so they had to do an ultrasound to be able to tell how pregnant we were. And in that very first ultrasound, um, we were pregnant enough to, to see that he was a boy. And so and usually have to wait a long time for that. But I think God knew that we needed changing. He knew that we needed to be able to see something that would change us. See, looking changes us. Jesus says in Matthew 6, the eye is the lamp of the body. What he's saying there is looking, whatever we look at, we're drawn into it, that we tend to look at the things that give us life. So Jesus talks a lot about money. And he says, if we focus all our time on money, if we focus on how we're gonna get money or how we're gonna save money or how we're gonna keep money, or if we're constantly looking at our portfolio, which people say all the time, I have no idea what that is, but people do that. uh, but, But if that's what you always do, eventually you will learn to love that. What you look at, you learn to love. You begin to cherish what you look at. So if, if you had to say what you spend most of your time looking at now, what would you say it is? The more you look at that thing, the more you will end up cherishing it. And maybe that's why Jesus is so extreme in Matthew 5, 29, when he says, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. That always, like, as a, I remember as a teenager reading that, I thought, like, gosh, Jesus, that's crazy, you know? But, but I think it's very important because he knows that looking is the key. See, if, if our eyes are the lamp of the body, if our eyes were meant, if we were designed with eyes so that it would draw us into hearts of compassion, when we use our eyes to objectify, when we use our eyes for lust and not compassion, we are being kept from what God had in mind when he thought us up. We are living counter to our design, to what we were built for. Our eyes were meant to fill our hearts with love for people, not to objectify and degrade people and turn them into a problem or into an object. If the eye is the lamp of the body, when Jesus sees people in the gospels, we see that his eyes are full of people, which means his heart is full of love for people, all kinds of people. 
the religious, the irreligious, the wealthy, the poor, the most unlikely people. Every time Jesus looked at a person, he was reminded of his mission. For God so loved the world, for God so loved people that he gave his son. And every time Jesus looked at a person, he was reminded of the cost of that mission. For God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus's looking led to his death. Our looking should remind us of our mission to see to it that nobody misses the grace of God. And our looking should lead to the death of our selfishness. So how's your looking? How are you at, at looking? With the example of the Good Samaritan, we are invited again by Jesus to look and examine our looking. We can't just... Um, we can't just get on our iPhones every time we get in the line at Chipotle, which is always long, even at three or four, like at weird times, like there's always a line at Chipotle. And this is more, I'm preaching myself. If I'm out in public alone, my impulse, my tendency is to pull out my phone and just kind of throw, you know, kind of escape from, from the world around me. I don't want to have to engage in the world around me. And I'm pretty sure that's a sin. And even if it's not, it's definitely not what I was built for. When we are out, we need to be looking. Like we've said the past two weeks, we've been brought to this city. We've been brought to this place at this time by divine providence. And how often we end up like the priest and the Levite, not because we've necessarily purposely looked away, but because we've missed it because of Candy Crush or, or Kim Kardashian's Insta story. Like we miss so much by being on our phones. But our phones aren't all bad. In fact, our phones can also help us to look. One of my seminary professors used to say we need to be reading the Bible with a newspaper in hand. Uh, but that was, I was in seminary before the iPhone even came out. Um, but, but I would say we need to be reading our Bibles with Twitter scrolling. And this isn't to say we need to read our Bibles and allow distractions in. But what it is saying is as we read our Bible, we have to be looking and engaging with the world around us. We have to take what we're reading and seeing in Scripture and apply it to this world. As Christians, we have no excuse for not knowing what's going on in the world around us. And our biblical knowledge has to be applied to the world we live in. Our world desperately needs our voices. Jesus came not just to you know, take us to heaven when we die. He came, he said, to bring it on earth as it is in heaven. We have to be looking. We have to be engaging. Last week, we saw that 1.8 million people in our city aren't connected to a church here. Now, again, like we said last week, that doesn't mean that 1.8 million people in our city aren't Christians, but my guess is more of them aren't than are. Our Bible reading should be impacted by that fact. As we know that about our neighborhood, as we know that about our city, as we read scripture, we will see God's heart for the lost. And that should then affect the way we look. That should affect the way we engage our city. And knowing that 80% of people who don't go to church said that they would go to church if a trusted friend invited them, that should impact the way we read and study scripture. Andy Stanley, in a, in a recent sermon, said, when looking to invite someone to church, you really should be looking for, for three things, or, or even, or better said, listen for three things. 
He says, when you hear someone say, this is a hard time, or when you hear someone say, this just doesn't make sense, or when you hear someone say, I'm new to the area, all three of these statements should prompt us to invite people to church. Someone says their marriage is hard. You say, well, hey, I don't know. Have you ever just, have you ever tried going with your wife or your husband to church? Like, sometimes it's really good to just go experience something like that together and then have something to talk about besides whatever the problem is in your marriage. Like, maybe, maybe come to church with me. Or someone says, hey, I, this just doesn't make sense. My kid is sick and I don't understand why. Like, why is it my kid? Why is it not me? Or, or it doesn't make sense that my parents are getting a divorce after 30 years of marriage. Or it doesn't make sense that I lost my job. Say, well, you know, in, in my church, we try to make sense of hard things. We try to talk about difficult things. Have you ever, have you ever wanted to just kind of check out church? Or someone says, hey, I'm new. And you say, oh, that's great. I've got, I've got a lot of cool friends uh, at this church I go to, and they're always talking about building community. And it's like every week they talk about that. So like maybe you should come check that out. But it's not just about looking to invite, although that's important. The second thing is it's about meeting the need that's right in front of us. Did you know in 2013, the U.S. Department of Housing and, the Urban, Develop and Urban Development reported that we have the most long-term homeless population in the nation for a community of our size? The most. But I actually have some good news about that. Homelessness in our city has actually dropped 60% since that report was made known. How did that happen? Well, it happened because people began looking. They became aware of the problem in the neighborhood, and they looked long enough to begin to cherish what they looked at. People in, in, in who's, uh, in, in God, in, in, who were made in God's image. And then they met that need by just meeting the need in front of them. No one just solved that problem as one big, huge problem. No, it was a bunch of people solving individual needs as they came in front of them. Now we have 1,613 homeless people in our city right now, which is still 1,613 too many. But y'all, that's doable. There's hope from going from, from the city with the, with the largest homeless population to 16. Uh, 113, like that's doable. And it starts with us looking long enough to cherish and then meeting whatever need is right in front of us. In verse 34, it said, the good Samaritan went to this man. He saw the need in front of him. He bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Now imagine if the Samaritan had come to this man by the wayside and said, hey, we worship at Mount Gerizim on Saturdays and do a potluck on Wednesday. Hey, if you get a chance, come by there. That would be dumb, right? If someone is hungry and you say, come to church and hear about Jesus, and you don't first offer them a sandwich, that's dumb. Please don't invite them here, okay? I don't want them to know that you're from here. That's a dumb, that's a dumb response. When someone has a need, even though their greatest, all of our greatest needs are a restored relationship with God, but when someone has a physical need right in front of us, that's the need you meet first, it's in meeting that need that oftentimes the deeper need is opened. Um, one of my favorite books is Same Kind of Different as Me. I've talked about it before in some sermons and even quoted it. Um, but I encourage, if, if you haven't read it, you should read it. But it's a true story of a friendship between a white, rich um, art dealer and a black homeless man who for most of his life was actually a modern-day slave. 
Um, and, um, and I want to read to you um, a description of, of the homeless shelter uh, where this rich white art dealer uh, meets uh, this homeless man for the first time. He writes this. Everyone who ate at the mission earned their free meal only after going into the chapel to sit like dead men on hard benches while a white-haired and nearly blind preacher named Brother Bill roared about the saving power of Jesus and the unpleasant consequences reserved for the unredeemed. From the kitchen side of the chapel door, locked to prevent altar call escapees, I could hear the hellfire and brimstone tough love message that I often agree cracks hard cases. But it seemed manipulative to me to make the hungry sit like good dogs for their supper. And it did not surprise me that even when Brother Bill split the air with one of his more rousing sermons, not a single soul ever burst through the chapel doors waving their hands and praising Jesus, at least not while we were there. The Samaritan did not preach to this man a sermon. He didn't invite him to a church service. He didn't ask him to accept Jesus as his savior. He just met the need that was right there. He met the need. And he didn't form a committee to figure out how to meet the need in the right way. He just did it. Now, I know what I'm saying might be causing some tension. And maybe you're, you're worried rightly because you're, you're worried, well, what if I help in a hurtful way? Which is a real danger. But Jesus says, if there's a need in front of you and you can meet it, meet it. In fact, Jesus says in Matthew 25, as you treat the poor or those in need, you've treated me. You hear what Jesus is saying? He's saying, I'm the broken people in the world. I'm the, I'm the people you least want to help. I am them. Jesus says on the last day, there will be those who truly followed him who will come to him and he'll look at them and he'll say, when I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was naked, you gave me clothes to wear. When I was sick, you took care of me. When I was in prison, you came and visited me. And he said, those people will look at him and say, what are you talking about? When did we do these things for you? I don't remember doing any of this for you. And Jesus will say, whatever you did for the least, you did for me. Jesus says, if there is a need that you can meet and it's in front of you, meet the need. And in doing so, it is like you are doing it to him. There's a tension here that can't be easily resolved. But I will say this, if you decide to give a couple bucks to the guy on, on, the, on the side of the off-ramp, um, is that more about easing your tension or his? See, helping that is not hurtful always eases the tension for the one you're helping, not you. And remember, the key, the first step, you can't skip past the first step, the key is looking. So we have to look. We have to look long enough to where we can begin to cherish that which we're looking at. And then we have to meet the need that's right in front of us. And lastly, we have to give until we feel the burden. Verses 34 and 35 says this. And then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, which is about two days wages, and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. This Samaritan took this man by the wayside to an inn. He spent two days worth of wages, and then he promised to spend more if needed. Now, that's a significant amount of money. 
I mean, at least for that week, the Samaritan had to live on only slightly more than half of what he earned, what he was used to living on. And not only that, he gave up his time and his energy. I'm sure staying up all night to take care of this man made him inefficient in his job for a couple days. And not only that, he gave up his plans. Wherever the Samaritan was headed that day, he never arrived. Have you ever given like that? That's the example Jesus gives us of what we were built for, to give like that to give in a way that we feel the burden of the one we give to. Jonathan Edwards, um, everyone's favorite hellfire and brimstone preacher, um, uh, and he actually, he's actually a brilliant man who loves the Lord and has incredible insights um, into God's word. In fact, he's one of my go-to preachers whenever I'm preparing a sermon. Um, but, you know, I do think he was hungry when he prepared uh, Sinners in the hands of an angry God, because that one's just, it's just, ah, okay. So, so that might be your only impression of him, but he has some really incredible things to say, and one of them I want to share with you right now. It's, it's an it's a excerpt from a sermon he gave on the Good Samaritan, and we have it up on the screen because it's kind of archaic in its language, uh, but there's so much that I want us to latch on here. So let's, let's look at this together. It's, he, he said this, in many cases, we may, by the rules of the gospel, be obliged to give to others when we cannot do it without suffering ourselves. As if our neighbor's difficulties and necessities be much greater than our own, and we see that he is not like to be otherwise relieved, we should be willing to suffer with him and to take part of his burden on ourselves. Else, how is it that rule of bearing one another's burdens fulfilled? If we be never obliged to relieve others' burdens, but when we can do it without burdening ourselves, then how do we bear our neighbor's burdens when we bear no burden at all? How do we bear our neighbor's burdens when we bear no burden at all? A poor man is a man walking with a burden. So whenever you and I, whenever we see someone, we say, you know, I just, I can't afford to help right now. What we're really saying is, it's gonna cut into my comfort. It's gonna affect my standard of living. It, it's going to affect my plans. In other words, some of the poor man's burden is gonna slide over onto my shoulders. We might not be able to take that vacation or buy that new car or it might throw our schedule off for a week or two. But listen, if our giving to the needy does not burden us, or cut into our lifestyle in any way, or cause us to change our plans, we have to give more. Then we haven't given enough. Remember we said the very first week, with grace there's always an exchange. Every act of mercy requires a substitution. If you and I give, but we never feel the burden of the one we're giving to, we haven't given enough. Galatians 6.2 says, carry each other's burdens, and in this way you fulfill the law of Christ. I love this quote from Anne Frank's diary. She said, no one has ever become poor by giving. Do you believe that? Jesus seems to. In fact, Jesus seems to say again and again that that's what we were built for, that we were built to give. Because when Jesus put on flesh, when he became one of us, he came to be our savior, but he also came as our example, as a picture of what humanity was always intended to be. And what did he do? 
He gave until he felt the burden of the ones he was giving to us. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins or our burdens in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Jesus gave until he felt the burden so that you and I could become what we were always meant to be. That's what he did. I want to end by saying this. These steps that we see the Samaritan take, um, I really believe are the steps that as we take them, we will become more and more of what God had in mind when he thought us up. But it's going to look different for each one of us. God has fashioned uniquely your heart to meet some need in this broken and hurting world. And as you reach out to the poor and the needy and the lonely from a place of understanding your own poverty and your own neediness and your own loneliness, you will discover a calling that you might not have perceived before. And so the next step from this sermon, we like to give next steps here. The next step is, is not to have it all figured out. It's not to go out and say, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, to you know, get a shelter for every single homeless person here. Like you, that probably, you probably can't take that next step tonight. But you can take the next step of saying, all right, in this season, where as a church family, we're going to be looking at what it means to be on mission, I'm going to be open and engaged. I'm going to be open and engaged. I'm going to, I'm going to listen to the teaching throughout this season. I'm going to discuss it in Christ-centered community. I'm going to get around my connect group and talk about the things that we're studying you're going to look for opportunities to volunteer and serve. And, and during this season, we're going to highlight so many of our different partnerships, both locally and globally, that we have. And, and there'll be opportunities for you to engage. So engage in whatever way you can. And, I, and I'm positive that as we individually take steps of really looking and meeting whatever needs God puts in front of us and giving until we feel the burden, I'm positive that God will use each and every one of us to do immeasurably more than we could ever imagine or ask in our city and world. I'm positive. I'm so excited to see what happens as we really engage in the mission of God. I've told y'all before about uh, one of my mentors, Michael Middleton. Um, he's a pediatrician. Some of you maybe have, you know, bring your kids to him. He's great. Um, but when I first moved back here to Orlando from L.A. and, and I was really struggling with, with what I was going to do with my life, I was meeting with Michael. And, and Michael kept kind of calling out um, things that he was seeing in me that he thought, like, maybe God's wired you for this. And, and it was really through meeting with him that, that I surrendered to, to this, to this kind of work, that this is what God built me for. And this is about 10 years ago. And I remember at the same time that I was meeting with Michael, he was always talking about this buddy of his who was also a pediatrician named Marvin. And, and he was saying, and it was at about the same time he was saying, you know, Marvin, you know, we just, they just got out of medical school and, and they're in a good practice together. Um, and, you know, they got their house and their family and, and, you know, everything's starting to feel real good. But his friend Marvin just kind of kept feeling like there was something else he was supposed to do. Uh, and so to end, I want to show you a video uh, of, of kind of what Marvin ended up doing. And, uh, and I, I hope that this is just one example as, as we watch it of what it looks like to look 
to meet needs that are right in front of us and to give until we feel the burden. I hope this will be one example of what is possible as each of us individually take those steps. So let's watch this together.